0: I think we're in radical territory when the justices are willing to throw over precedent without explaining what the grounds were for doing so now, except to say that we know better. It's more important that our constitutional understanding is in place than the respect for precedent.
1: Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast, I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Caroline Fredrickson. She's currently teaching at the Georgetown University Law Center and was previously for over a decade the president of the american constitution society the progressive answer to the right-wing federalist society and before that caroline was deputy chief of staff and chief of staff to u.s senators tom daschle and maria cantwell it was really good to catch up with caroline and hear about her career and what she's up to now please listen so after a quick word from my sponsor my interview with caroline frederickson Caroline, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography?
0: Sure. I'm Caroline Fredrickson. I'm a distinguished visitor from practice at Georgetown Law Center, a senior fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. I spent 10 and a half years running the American Constitution Society. Before that, I worked in the Clinton White House for a little bit. I was the director of the Washington Legislative Office of the ACLU, and I worked on the Hill in the Senate for about 10 years.
1: That's quite a distinguished career in progressive politics. Can you tell me a little bit about your path there? Where did you grow up?
0: I grew up outside of Chicago in Evanston, Illinois, and my parents were both college professors at Northwestern.
1: I, I spent one summer there on the lake when I was undergrad with a summer job. It was a very nice town.
0: Oh, it's a great, it's a great town. It was a great place to grow up. And, you know, it has made me 100% dedicated to the power of public schools We had a really great public school system. I felt really well prepared for college and afterwards. You know, it was one of those huge Midwestern high schools with 4,000 students, down from the 5,000 it had when my sisters were there. (laughs) But the community cared a lot about good public education.
1: Yeah, what did they teach?
0: My mother taught French and French literature and my father taught American history.
1: And you went off to Yale, as I did, what was that experience like?
0: It was really pretty terrific. I think I was pretty well grounded because I had this, you know, great public education before I went there. It was a bit of a rude awakening. I grew up pretty privileged, right? I mean, children of college professors in a wonderful college town. Um, but to sort of, you know, be exposed to the to the real, you know, how wealthy and privileged people really can be, it was eye opening. But the you know the education was great. I made a lot of good friends, and what I really appreciate is that my parents were, didn't try and mold me into something specific, and you know, recognized, I think, that an undergraduate major, it should allow you to do all sorts of different things afterwards, and you shouldn't be too kind of career-focused, what am I going to be ultimately? So I majored in Russian and East European studies, which actually seemed pretty important at that point in time, since I was there in the, in the 80s, you know, the Cold War is still going on, the Soviet Union is still intact. After the wall fell, it seemed like it was much less useful, but now we all see that sadly it's become useful again. But, you know, but I didn't stick with that area of, of, of where I went into politics and then went to law school.
1: What did you do between undergrad and law school?
0: To work briefly on the Hill for a wonderful congressman from Illinois named Lane Evans, a really great prairie populist, progressive, really um, great experience. And sadly, he's he passed away prematurely. But then after that, I went to work on a presidential campaign and a Senate campaign, and I worked for um, Ted Kennedy's Senate campaign, where I joined my then boyfriend who was working for Mike Dukakis, <laughs> who's now my husband. So I was up in Boston um, and working for Ted Kennedy.
1: Who was his opponent that time?
0: That was Joe Malone, who was a Republican office holder. I think he was the Secretary of State. That was the easy race.
1: Not the Mitt Romney race that came later. No, this right? was yeah. right
0: right before. And then I went to law school.
1: Columbia. Why Why law school?
0: Well, you know, I, I, to be honest with you, although the Kennedy campaign was pretty fun, but mostly, you know, let's face it, it was, you know, it was a bit starstruck. I met some, some TV actors and movie stars, and I went to their compound on Cape Cod a couple of times, and it was a pretty interesting, fun experience for a young person. But working as an organizer on a campaign and pretty much most jobs on campaigns are mostly boring and tedious and draining and long hours. And some people just love that experience. And for me, not so much. And so I thought, well, you know, and I really love politics and policy. So maybe law school is the right mix between campaigning and something more, you know, removed from politics, give me a little bit more substance. So I thought, I'll go to law school. The other part of it is that when I was out in Iowa working on the presidential campaign before that, I got really interested in labor policy and worked a lot. I was on Dick Gephardt's campaign, and we had a lot of support from union members, the UAW in particular, and I became very excited and interested in looking at and studying labor law. And decided that I wanted to go into labor law after law school.
1: Did law school turn out to be what you expected?
0: Not entirely. It was pretty galvanizing for me in a lot of ways. I mean, I guess I had been in politics, but I became an activist in law school, (laughs) which is different, right? You know, I I mean, I did some marches um, when I was in college, and clearly I worked on campaigns, but I actually became, in coordination with the other students, we engaged in a lot of uh, let's say actions and activities in order to try and make Columbia be a better place, more diverse, um, more sensitive to issues around race and gender. And I felt like we actually we did something. Well, we did some sit-ins and we took over the dean's office and we did some marches. It was quite an interesting experience in that way. So that was really important. I found law school at that point to be pretty arid. The whole way of teaching I found it just befuddling. Having been in politics. To all of a sudden be reading cases that were totally abstracted from history and context, as if they'd been handed down from Mount Olympus or something, you know, this profound statement by the gods, but in fact were actually conditioned and bound by the circumstances in which they were issued, there were political ideologies, that judges have backgrounds. And the law teaching has changed a lot since then, but that was really pretty much the approach, a straight-ahead case, case law approach. And, I found it really confusing. And as I said, on the other hand, I made some great friends. I became an activist. I had some great professors. And it was a great experience, but maybe not in the way that most people (laughs) think, you know, you'd mean uh, you'd had a great experience.
1: Well, it certainly took you down a path that has been your career. What did you do after law school before going to the White House? What were those years spent doing?
0: Well, I, I had a clerkship with a wonderful judge on the Second Circuit named James Oakes, who was based in Vermont. And so I spent a year shuttling back and forth between Brattleboro, Vermont and Manhattan, which was actually really a pretty great setup, right? Three weeks in Vermont, a week in Manhattan. And then I had a fellowship in Germany, a Bosch Fellowship, a German foundation that was bringing over kind of young Americans, what they called their future leaders program. I was a little anomalous for them because most of the fellows came over to work in the German government and then with a company. I came over and worked with the German Trade Union Federation and then with a labor lawyer. But that was so interesting. It really exposed me to a whole different way of thinking about labor policy, the system of co-determination. I have to say I wasn't working with a labor lawyer. That sounds much grander than it was. I was tagging along (laughs) after a really great lawyer in Berlin who was working with uh, works council members. Those are the organizations of workers, the sort of the worker representatives under the uh, co-determination system, but also in East Germany, they have works councils. And under the newly unified Germany, the Germans were rapidly privatizing all of these East German companies that had been government run and, you know, selling them off to us. And that was really having a profound impact on people's lives, you know, whether, you know, it, you know, there, it was a good thing or, I mean, certainly, you know, East Germany was a terrible place and, and you know, it was good that, you know, the wall came down. But there were still a lot of the issues about how to transition, how people would transition in their lives. And so, you know, I went with him to some of these kind of real rust bucket East German towns to meet with works council members and try and figure out like the best kind of system. So as their company got privatized, you know, what would be the protections for them um, so they wouldn't just be unemployed in the newly unified Germany. So th- that was an amazing and interesting experience.
1: Can I just ask you one thing? So you majored in Russian, so you I assume, learned to speak that. You also speak German. How did you get so interested in languages and what's the breadth of your...
0: Oh, well, um, that, yeah, my mother's French. And so I also have French citizenship. Funny, I, and she was professor of French and French literature, but she didn't teach her children French. I mean, I think partly my father's French was a little bit, well, not so great. He could read well, but his speaking was a little problematic. And so I think it was it just seemed easier to them, and at the time, they didn't have the knowledge, the sort of understanding of children's little flexible brains that you could actually have one parent speak one language and another parent speak another language, and that children would just learn both, and that that wasn't confusing. And but so I learned French mostly in school, but because I heard so much French, my mother has quite a strong French accent, my ear was really attuned. And um, so when I, I actually thought I was going to major in French when I got to college, and then you kind of once you start taking Russian, you get so sucked in because it's like it takes over your life you can't really just go in part-time, right? It's a hard language. I had no background. The Bosch Fellowship wonderfully did not require any German before you applied. Um, And so Sean, my husband was on his way to do his doctoral research in Germany. And I thought, well, it'd be nice to have a fellowship in Germany. And the Bosch Fellowship was great because I didn't want to go back to school. It was actually kind of an experience-based fellowship and it didn't require German but wonderfully once you get it they provide you with resources to study german before you come over and then the summer i arrived in germany i had an intensive language program in cologne for 2 months 6 hours a day and it was taught really well kind of modern approaches unlike the really antiquated way we learn russian at yale which was just was taught by a couple of soviet emigres who you know it was like by the book 1932 how you learn a language. <laughs> And, uh, so the german was easier it's also closer to english so it, it was easier but that i just yeah i do love languages and um i'm trying to keep my russian up and my french and german i have to get back to but the french i just got my mother so
1: yeah it makes a lot more sense now why you went over there if you and your husband had something to do both of you what was next for you career-wise after that mm-hmm.
0: so i came back and i went to the law firm that i had been a summer associate at um, uh, and, um, I, uh, so I spent a couple of years there and found that I actually really missed politics. <laughs> you know, I to always tell my students, this is think about not just the area of law you're interested in, but how you like to spend your time. And I was at an appellate litigation, small firm where, you know, the emphasis is on brief writing and I do love to write, but I to you know, 16 hours a day of writing with no human exposure. Didn't make all my synapses spark the way I like them. You know, some people just really love that. And I was, Kind of you know felt isolated and
1: appellate work in what area mostly or in
0: labor law yeah it was a, f- a firm that, that 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 worked represented unions in front of the you know appellate courts the supreme court they had a practice that was very well respected and represented the afl cio and but i i had to, i handled a couple of cases that were you know of lower interest to the other um, lawyers there which involved actually representing a client directly in arbitration and um, and I found that I so loved that it was so it was so great to actually be kind of on the ground working with somebody. And I thought, you know what, maybe I should go back to the Hill because I really loved that job working for Congressman Evans. And I landed a dream job. I worked for Senator Daschle when he was the Democratic leader, doing labor and judiciary policy. And you know, it was like a fish in water. I just I loved the mix of trying to figure out policy positions, working on the strategy of organizing the caucus coordinating with other staff people, writing speeches for Senator Daschle. I mean, it was just such a mix of of things to do.
1: I observed Senator Daschle just from afar. He always seemed like a really adept leader and good person. Does that seem like an accurate?
0: Uh, Very much so. Absolutely. He was a terrific person to work for. And what was really, you know, exceptional experience for me was that I felt very much empowered and trusted to do my work. I certainly didn't mean I was completely, you know, without supervision, but there was an important lesson, I think, about how to be a good manager. He and his, his, his chief of staff were excellent at, at, at allowing the staff to, to do their work, no micromanaging, but really giving good guidance. And so I felt it was so exciting for me to kind of get into um, uh, the different issue areas and actually present Senator Daschle with ideas for legislation that he might introduce um, and draft legislation. And so, yeah, it was, he was terrific. I mean, it just really, a very nice person and a, and a really great boss.
1: You know, I was talking recently to Mike Podhorzer, who was mm-hmm. mentioning a case of uh, coming to the Supreme Court about labor law, about allowing companies to sue unions for damages. Mm-hmm. I, I assume you're aware of that since that's your area. Yes. Tell me about that a little bit from your perspective. What's going on there?
0: I'm not all that familiar with the case. I have been doing labor law for a long time, really. I mean, I teach an international a comparative labor. Well, it's about labor rights in a globalized economy. It doesn't deal a lot with American labor law this case comes out of a strike where I believe the issue is that the company suffered financial damages and wants to be able to sue the union to recover. It would really decimate the ability of American workers to engage in collective activity against a company if they thought they were going to be liable. I mean, that's the whole point of a strike is to inflict financial damage. I mean, it is, what else would you be trying to do in order to leverage the collective might of workers to the extent there is any, except to shut a company down, which is economic
1: you know, damage.
0: Economic damage, right.
1: Yeah. It always amazes me how things bubble up in the legal system that come at some part of the law from a new angle that flips it upside down like that. It's just.
0: Oh, it's, these things don't bubble up.
1: Well, they uh, bubble know, up on purpose. I'm well aware. Yes, exactly. yes. Can you just talk about that kind of pattern of how things do reach the court and find themes in the thinking of, of the law that that enable these right turns sometimes?
0: One has to give credit to people on the right who are very clever. Um, in They have these think tanks that spend their time developing legal theories designed to try and bring down very important statutory protections or or constrain constitutional protections that have been recognized. So, for example, the affirmative action case. Ed Blum, who is the lawyer who's been bringing these cases forever, has been his life's ambition is to, I guess, ensure that, that we can never consider Um, even though we did for centuries consider race in any particular process. In this case, it's in the educational process where it has been watered down to the extent that the consideration of race is one of a multiple set of factors to provide a more diverse campus because of the recognition that it's important for all students to be exposed to people from different backgrounds. They create these so-called these groups. They're sort of astroturf-like in the sense that they create a plaintiff they find people. It's not as though this is a sort of organic kind of case. It comes out of an ideological position and then they find the right people to be the face. And certainly with respect to these cases that have come up to undermine the ability of workers to engage in collective action, they are the product of the National Right to Work Foundation or the Pacific Legal Foundation or these other groups that believe that the so-called free market cannot be constrained by any laws that don't allow corporations to run roughshod over over their workers and over communities. And they create these cases. And we have Supreme Court justices like Sam Alito, who will keep their eye open for these kinds of cases and make sure that they get before the court. And to the extent that tore apart the right of public employees to create collective strength, Sam Alito in a in a in a dissent put out word that, you know, we're looking for the right case in this area, basically encouraging people to come to the court because he knew they were gonna have the votes.
1: Does the same thing happen on the progressive side in the courts?
0: It might if there were a court that were at all receptive, but
1: I mean there was in the past a court that was receptive, right?
0: Yeah, but you know, I think people really overestimate. And here's this is an important lesson for the left. The courts were almost never on our side. The Warren Court is a tiny island in a sea of conservatism. But in fact, the court has been an overwhelmingly conservative force and a constraint on efforts to address social inequities and and remedy some of the major failings of our Constitution.
1: Yeah. It feels like we're going backwards to like... 1906 type decisions or something.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you're right. The Lochner case is right around 1906.
1: Yep. Were you chief of staff for someone else or for Daschle? What?
0: I was deputy chief of staff for Senator Daschle after I came back from the White House. And then I uh, was chief of staff to Senator Maria Cantwell from Washington State.
1: Tell me about that. How was that office?
0: I was Well, it was a really exciting experience for me, draining and exhausting also, because I was her first chief of staff. So she was coming in as a new senator. And no one will remember this, in part because it was a long time ago, but in part because her election was overlooked in many ways because of the, the fight going on in the presidential election between Al Gore and George Bush. But she also was in a very, very close election and won by a handful of votes, and there was a recount and so forth. So by the time that was all resolved, every other senator had hired staff, and she came to Washington really pretty much right before the inauguration and the swearing in of senators without a staff. I really loved working for Dashell, but I thought, I've never worked for a woman before. I've never, you know, would it be a, a, a great experience to try and be a chief of staff? And I thought, like Al Haig, I'm going to throw my helmet in the ring. And I interviewed with her and she hired me. And then we were scrambling. I was, still had to finish up my job with Senator Dashell. You know, there were lots of responsibilities and a new Congress. And um, we had a 50-50 Senate back then, which we had to negotiate how the rules would apply—it's complicated because the Senate operates by unanimous consent. But the majority leader has the right of first recognition, which means, you know, getting to help set the agenda of the Senate. And how do you divide up, you know, the the budgets between committees and you know, et cetera, et cetera? So I had to, you know, kind of help Maria Cantwell hire staff, set up the office, have policy positions, go through, you know, uh, confirmation hearings for. You know, she was on the Judiciary Committee, so for you know the attorney general. It was for Ashcroft, you know, and 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 all of those kinds of things. So it was an incredible scramble, but it, I learned so much. I'd already experienced this in the Senate. Was that the other staff was enormously helpful to me, kind of getting my bearings and learning how to um, to do the job. But then I, I I reached out even further, you know, to the Congressional Management Foundation and other former chiefs of staff and people were so helpful to me to try and figure out what to do, because I, you know, I had never done this before. So putting together the budget for the office and all of that. So, so I spent four years with Senator Cantwell, and then I went to the ACLU.
1: I think it was round about that time that American Constitution Society was founded. Do you have any awareness at that point of that new organization?
0: Yeah, I I, I did, in part because Senator Cantwell was very good friends with Peter Rubin, who was a professor at Georgetown who helped working with the students to create what was known, I think, for a short time as the Madison Society. And they realized that was not a good name and came up with the American Constitution Society. And Senator Cantwell and I actually went to one of the earliest conventions where she spoke. Yeah, I was well aware and knew some of the staffers right from the beginning.
1: Where did you say you went after that?
0: Well, at first, I went to NARAL, Pro-Choice America, as the general counsel and legal director, I was hired away pretty quickly by the ACLU to be the director of the Washington Legislative Office.
1: What was that like? I mean, that, ACLU obviously uh, a pretty exciting place to go as a lawyer interested in in the country, and the Constitution, civil liberties. That
0: was an amazing experience. I just I loved it. I to give kudos to my boss, Anthony Romero, who's still the head of the ACLU. Who's just a Terrific, wonderful person and in a lot of the ways that Senator Daschle, you know, sort of the the experience of being trusted and supported and supervised in, in a way that was really respectful of my areas of expertise um, without leaving me to just kind of go out and be completely a lone wolf operator.
1: It's so nice when important people in positions of power are actually good humans. It isn't something you can take for granted, is it?
0: No, you you really can't. And I think that's why the ACLU in part has been so successful under Anthony Romero is that he's a great leader and he's a really great person. So I had a great experience. It was again, it was hard times when George Bush was president, we were dealing with issues that I never thought I was going to have to deal with in the United States. I understand, you know, we have had great failings, but I didn't think we were going to be dealing with torture in the 21st century as an official policy of the US government and have mass surveillance and and sort of that whole set of issues around the war on terror, which you know was a, a fig leaf effort to roll back civil liberties in many in many areas.
1: What's the job of the head of the Washington legislative office? What do you have to do?
0: Well we had a team of lobbyists in the areas that the ACLU was engaged in, a team of communications people and field organizers. So you know sort of connecting the grassroots to the lobbying efforts and the grass tops efforts, that means, you know, sort of engaging with people with reach who have special relationships with members of Congress or can speak to the media. and So it was a really great three-dimensional job because it was, uh, you know, you had to understand the policy issues, but you had to think strategically about how they play out in politics, how to influence members of Congress using relationships that they might have with people at home or thinking about mobilization. We did fly-ins and a big rally day and, and, and things like that. But it was really just an, an extremely great experience. Whenever I, you know, I teach a class on legislation and statutory interpretation, and part of it, we talk about lobbying, I think people have to understand that lobbying, you know it's not a dirty word. It can be done in a, in an unethical way, but it, it's petitioning your government.
1: It depends on what you're lobbying for. If you're lobbying exactly. for something good, right. then it's a good job.
0: Right. There's lobbying for the public interest, and there's lobbying for the kind of private and special interest.
1: Was that a management job too? Was there substantial yeah. staff? Yeah.
0: So yeah, I had about sixty staff.
1: What were you learning about management? Because you mentioned a few times, you know, working for other people. What were mm-hmm. you learning about being a manager yourself?
0: I think from from Senator Daschle and from Anthony Romero and Maria Canwell, you know, the idea that you wanna hire great people, but then if you've, if you've hired great people, you have to understand that you can't check in on them every five minutes and sort of, uh, otherwise they'll never be able to get their job done, but you have to give them good and clear duties, you know, or sort of goals, make sure they have work plans, have a regular check-in, you know, in whatever period of, you know, weekly or monthly or whatever it is, you know, to get get updates but there, the, the idea of, of sort of making sure that you not step on people's, you know, ability to get the job done by being in their face all the time, being respectful. And I think also, you know, being a good person and trying to be, you know, to run an office in a way where people were mutually respectful, which I think is so important. You hear too much about people who work in places where there's backbiting and sniping and undermining. That has no place. Um, if people don't like each other, then they should still be... You know, polite and respectful.
1: As a sometimes manager myself, I found it hard to get that amount of guidance right. I think you can be too far away uh, and not giving enough guidance and not having enough interaction. And you can be too close, as you mentioned. And it can vary by who you're talking to, how much they need or how, you know.
0: Yeah, it's a hard job. I can't say that I did it perfectly at all, but I did have the experience of people who were really great at it. And I tried to emulate that. It's hard to get that balance right, hit the right sweet spot um, of hands-on enough, but not strangling. (laughs) It is a really hard job. And I am, you know, very much respect people who do it for a long time. I felt, you know, I did it for a pretty long time between Senator Daschle, Senator Cantwell, um, NARAL, ACLU, and American Constitution Society. That was a great experience. I do love being a law professor now, though.
1: (laughs) Yeah, different kinds of responsibilities. What were the circumstances of you joining American Constitution Society? What was it like at that time and how did you get hired for that?
0: It was sort of a funny thing. I was at a conference and I met the board chair. I had the friend who had been the executive director who had gone into the Obama White House. So I knew that they hadn't had an executive director for a while and So the board chair and I um, met at this conference and started chatting and I, you know, offered to be helpful if I could help find candidates for them. You know, as I said, I love the ACLU. I wasn't thinking about leaving. He said, well, why don't you apply? And I said, no, no, no. I'm great here. You know, this is fun. And then, you know, we just continued to have conversations. And so I thought, all right, I'll apply. And so I did. And then, you know, it was a similar kind of thing. I thought, well, just so like when I left Senator Dash's office to go be Maria Campbell's chief of staff, I thought, you know, it, I love my job. I love being the director of the Washington office here. But why don't I try and actually run an organization and stretch myself in that regard and try something hard and new? And so I, I I applied and I, you know, was hired.
1: How big was it? How well was it managed at that point?
0: Was strong and in good shape. I hadn't had an executive director for a year, year and a half or so, so I had to learn the, the, the organization and the staff and um, and to build it out as much as possible. It was at a point during recession. So the budget had gone down before I got there. And so, you know, focus a lot of fundraising. I had done a little bit of political fundraising, but I hadn't done nonprofit fundraising before. I hadn't worked with foundations. And so, you know, learning all of that. Thinking about how to organize the staff in a way that I thought would strengthen the organization, so spending a lot of time in kind of organizational management kinds of things, which I hadn't done before. I mean, you have a little bit of leeway in the Senate, but there are certain constraints, right? You know, you know your budget's already more or less set. Everybody knows what kind of positions you need. But a nonprofit, you know, it's it's very amorphous. And so really looking at different models and talking to a lot of people, it's really interesting. The biggest challenge for the American Constitution Society, which continues to be a challenge, is for all organizations that focus on the Constitution and the courts, is that it requires a lot more effort to convince progressives and the left that the court is is an important focal point. On the right, they have, well, they have a lot more money. But the Federalist Society has been so entrenched and they have so much support for the idea that the judiciary is it's a branch of government that needs to be contested both the personnel the policy the program the legal philosophy it's absolutely essential that's always a struggle a lot of you know the left is is you know focused on the shiny object the next exciting thing um we're very much focused on elections and that's of course appropriate but on the other hand where the right has been exceptionally successful has been their ability to build institutions that are lasting, that really shape the agenda in major areas. And the judiciary is one of them. And there's a lot of writing on this, including for me in my book, The Democracy Fix, about the Powell memo in the early 70s, just coalescing around a vision of, you know, what are the kinds of institutions that we need on the right so that we can dominate politics and policy for the foreseeable future for generations. And they established all of these organizations, the Heritage Foundation and the Federalist Society. This was a, a, a group of, of corporate leaders, the Chamber of Commerce and the future Justice Powell was sort of the one who helped precipitate this, this meeting of minds. And they organized their funding and they built these institutions and they have never given up on them. Their funders don't go in and out. They sustain these organizations for decades.
1: Do you think that that the Warren Court and its successes made people on the left feel like the court was their ally and not to worry about that? What, I really don't understand that lack of urgency that you're mentioning.
0: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I think we're still fighting that. They're still fighting the idea that the courts are somehow liberal. And you see this in c- continuing in polls. People have glommed on to, well, it was Roe. <laughs> More recently, it's been Obergefell the case that recognized the right to marry, and that against the backdrop of everything else, pretty much. Okay, so there was Brown v. Board in 1954. There was the, uh, the Warren Court's protections of the rights of criminal defendants. And that sort of sticks in people's minds, and they don't know that, well, most of that has been undone, and that the court, for 95% of its history, has been extremely conservative and been a roadblock to progress.
1: You must have looked pretty closely at Federalist Society during that time. When people describe it to me, they say, you know, it has many multiples of the funding that American Constitution Society, and they kind of seem to hold it up almost with fear at their success. How did you view it? How did you view the two armies on the battlefield of that? You know,
0: one thing that was really important to me was to demystify it. The Federalist Society had been very successful at portraying themselves as purely a debating a debating organization. You know, they were conservative, but they wanted to present different ideas. It's the Potemkin village of dark money. Behind that facade is was a huge operation, a political operation. And from my vantage point, coming from the Hill, I had already seen the Federalist Society. And the efforts that they made to ensure that the judiciary was taken over, the strong role they played in the judicial selection process in the George Bush administration. And so I wanted to pull the mask off so that people understood that the Federalist Society is a political organization, and we need to battle them on that ground. It's not about the battle of ideas, at least not completely. In small part, it is. But the Federalist Society main effort is political. And if you see now Leonard Leo, who was the, you know, executive vice president, but he's the one everybody knows because he was, you know, he had the money bags and he was involved in so many other projects that involved moving money around between different conservative legal organizations that were engaged in elections, in attack ads, and in a whole variety of ways involving, you know, electing attorneys general, state court judges. And he recently has, gotten a gift of $1.6 billion from a major funder. And by the way, he's also somehow magically been able to buy several new houses, fancy cars, you know, and umpteen other things, which is being investigated as an improper use of the assets of a nonprofit. But, you know, we'll see what the prosecutors take that.
1: How many cars did you get given <laughs> when you were running? <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, I have a 2005 Prius.
1: So you're admitting to that. Okay.
0: Yeah, I got it.
1: Yeah, Should we think about federal society as a conservative group or like a far right? There's a sense that a lot of the judges that came in, particularly under Trump, but also beforehand, are really off the scale right wing, certainly some of them in the Supreme Court recently, but also at lower levels. How do you think about their politics and the the politics of the judges that are coming in by these appointments?
0: I mean, there, this was the Federalist Society list. It's their dream team. These are radical judges. I wouldn't call them conservative. Conservative and liberal are sort of on the spectrum of, you know, there's there's room for disagreement, but we could be agreeable over it. How you understand this language of the purpose of this law, what does the text say? But I think we're in radical territory when the justices are willing to throw over precedent without explaining what the grounds were for doing so now, except to say that we know better. It's more important that our constitutional understanding is in place than the respect for precedent. And their constitutional understanding, Justice Alito in the Dobbs case, draws from a 13th century theologian. And now they look to what they call history and tradition to understand constitutional provisions and older statutes. Well, Guess who wasn't part of that history and tradition in the 19th century? No wonder that history and tradition is never going to allow you to have progressive outcomes in cases, even if the language is clear, or even if there's no basis to overthrow a precedent because there's no, been no change. I mean, normally in a, in a common law system, in order to have stability of the law, an essential foundational point is that precedent should be adhered to unless there is a major reason to overthrow it. Now, clearly there were reasons to overthrow things like Plessy versus Ferguson and Brown versus Board of Education. It's not that we never do, but you have to have a strong argument for why you do that and not, well, they got it wrong in the first place because they weren't looking at this 13th century theologian who thought women were inferior and could be witches. And history and tradition meant that in the you know 19th century, there were no laws that allowed abortion. Well, is that your real framework? There were no laws that allowed a lot of things that we think are essential human rights now. Yeah.
1: Did you feel like you were fighting kind of a losing battle during your time as president of ACS?
0: Not, no, not at all. I think we we're just fighting a hard battle. It's sort of, well, we were Ukraine and the Federal Society is Russia and we we're fighting our hearts out um, and, and making advances. But they had overwhelming forces, the Koch brothers' money. And I'm not going to take this, this metaphor too far So I'll start describing their you know, conscripting convicts. They didn't do that. But we made progress. Unfortunately, one of the great advances was, was simply Trump made it clear what they were all about. I mean, they got, it was like a kid in a candy store. The Federalist Society got what they wanted. And all of a sudden, people have started to wake up. And then the court issued Dobbs. Now, President Biden, I have to give him great credit, and his chief of staff, Ron Klein, they understand how important the courts are and have moved with as much speed as possible to fill judgeships with highly qualified, extremely strong, but also diverse candidates. Beyond demographic diversity, that they have really also focused on people who come from different backgrounds in terms of their experience, public defenders, labor lawyers. people who aren't just corporate corporate lawyers and prosecutors. He needs to continue to do that. I put in a very strong plug for all of your listeners to call Senator Durbin and say, we have to get rid of the blue slip. It's a ridiculous impediment that Democrats are blocking their own ability to allow good judges to be confirmed.
1: A lot of progressives I talk to, particularly even running groups that are in this area, are so discouraged by the 6-3 conservative majority or whatever we want to call the majority that's there that they want to expand the court or put term limits on the court or find a way to not just endure this for as long as it takes to have the chance to appoint regular justices back there what's your view on some of those kind of remedies
0: oh i believe i agree for one thing i'm a very strong believer in term limits Um, but term limits is a long-term solution It's a good government solution that would recognize that it's anomalous when a president like Donald Trump gets three appointments and others get none, and then there's life tenure. That means the court becomes completely kind of unbalanced in terms of a reflection of the current moment. And not that it should be completely responsive to the current moment. I'm not suggesting that. But it can't be completely detached either with justices who reflect a very strong ideological viewpoint of a certain moment and are so anti-majoritarian that they threaten people's faith in rule of law. Term limits would would provide a an ability to make sure that there is a regular appointment process, but not so frequent that the justices don't have independence. But because of the way, you know, first of all, the blocking of Merrick Garland's appointment, and then the changing of the filibuster rules for Gorsuch, and then the rushing of Amy Coney Barrett, the court has become so out of whack and so extremely conservative that I think it is actually important to consider expanding the court were the Democrats able to do so. People say, oh, well, then the Republicans will do it. So like, guess what? The Republicans will do it regardless of what Democrats do. If they feel like that's a necessity, they'll do it. People who try and pin the getting rid of the filibuster for Supreme Court justices on Harry Reid because he got rid of it for lower court justices. Well, I say this to you. First of all, the filibuster is a, is, is a bad thing. It's anti-democratic. It should never have existed. But second of all, President Obama never would have gotten any of his judges through if they hadn't gotten rid of that. We wouldn't have a number of great judges who, um, it, I mean, because Senator McConnell was just not going to let anyone go. So it had to be done. And so the Republicans will do it. They will expand the court if they feel it's a necessity. I also think the court's too small anyway. a Nine people for the size of the country we have, it's been nine for a long time, but has changed. People have to understand, it's not a fixed number in the Constitution. There is no constitutional impediment to changing the size of the court. Otherwise, we face a real great danger to our democracy. And we've already seen what's happened to the Voting Rights Act. The court has has basically said, you know, there's nothing we can do about gerrymandering. They've undermined women's fundamental rights. They're going to undo any remaining effort to provide some ability to use higher education to remedy the great racial inequalities in our society. This is just going to keep going this way and worse.
1: What was the highlight for you of your time at ACS?
0: Well, I'm working with students, and I think maybe that's why I am a law professor now. Seeing the generation of students um, that were participated in the ACS student chapters, while I was there, I started the, the student convention that was just a tremendous opportunity for the students to kind of come together by themselves. They came to our national convention, but they got their own convention with, with great speakers, helped to create the content, but really to kind of build the bonds. I think one of the things that you learn from observing the Federalist Society is that Um, You know, there's a great deal. The network support is really important. So basically come out of the federal Society and they they help each other. And we wanted to create that same kind of network and infrastructure for the students coming out of ACS chapters. And so it was really just a tremendous, wonderful experience to get to know some of the students and to see where they ended up and to stay in touch with them. And so that that was really great. And one of the things I really do love about what I'm doing now as a law professor is, you know, it's, it's these great students that I see is, you know, whenever I feel a little bleak, like, well, you know, we have we, should, we have to have hope because we have these great younger people who are gonna make it better.
1: What were the circumstances around your leaving that organization?
0: Well, in 10 and a half years, I felt time for a change. I had loved it, but. I really wanted to try something new. I had taught some before. Uh, I did short courses um, actually in Lyon, France, at their Institute of Political Science. I'd done a couple of short courses They were just like three weeks or so condensed. You know, uh, they have long lectures there. So it was like four, uh, four classes a week of two hours. So it's like a full semester in three weeks. And I just found that I really loved it. I mean, I had been writing more and more, and I wanted to have the ability to spend more time writing. And I also think, you know, it's good for organizations to have leadership changes. And I wanted to not be that person who hung on for, you know, for 40 years. I think it was good to have a kind of, you know, changes and new visions. And, and uh, so, um, so I was, you know, had a great experience there, but I was really ready to, to move on.
1: What do you think of Senator Feingold as a leader for that group?
0: Seems like he's doing a great job. It's nice that they had to find a senator to replace me, but um, <laughs> kudos to him for, you know, continuing the fight.
1: You mentioned the $1.6 going to Leonard Leo. Do you think that there's any hope of other people funding the, the court side on the left to the degree that the right has been able to do it? There are the good billionaires, I guess. There's grassroots funding that people seem to do for presidential campaigns and the move-ons of the world and so on. I mean, what, what's what's stopping that from happening at the scale that maybe it needs to?
0: Well, you know, I think, I, as I've alluded to before, the funders on the left seem to be much more about chasing shiny objects. So
1: maybe they're going to be changed by all the shocks that are coming.
0: I hope so. Yeah. I, I do hope so, because the scale of difference is profound. 1.6 billion to Leonard Leo and his assorted organizations and you know ACS is is not even a blip on that.
1: It's a less than 10 million dollar budget, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's also that um on the left there is a lot less I mean there are more groups and they divide things between them. There's less kind of ability to coordinate responsibilities in quite the way. They're much more top-down on the right and hierarchical. So they have their groups and they stay in their lane and they do their thing and Federalist society does its thing. And but I also think there is a you know also a difference in that overall the legal environment, the legal community tends to skew more moderate or even liberal. I guess we have a broader support. The hard part is is galvanizing it to engage in specific fights to focus on the personnel of the courts. And that's where it becomes difficult. Um, And there are so many battlegrounds, right? There's voting rights, there's the environment, there's workers' rights, there's a panoply of other challenges. And so in the legal community, you know, as I said, it may skew more moderate or liberal, but there are so many battles to fight that it doesn't allow for, I think, or hasn't provided for the real significant investment in a court-based organization.
1: Tell me about this part of your life now. You seem to have so many different organizations that you're part of in different ways. You're doing the law professor thing. You've been writing books and articles. I've seen you you know, in various newspapers and so on. Tell me about your life now, how is it?
0: Mm -hmm. Oh, well, it's it's terrific. I am really enjoying it. As I said, I enjoy the teaching, enjoy the students, my colleagues, I'm learning a lot. And one thing I would say is, you know, when people tell you that teaching is hard work, believe them, it's really hard work. I mean, if you wanna be at all good, it's nothing like what I've done before, except these short teaching, I'd like to do a decent job and provide the students with a, you know, with a good experience and learning environment. And so that, that takes up a lot of work, preparing the courses and then preparing for each specific class. And grading, of course, is always everybody's favorite activity. I do a lot with my students in terms of, you know, jobs and, and giving advice because I always tell them, people in my age group, nothing better than we like to, than giving people advice. So, um, so I, I do a lot of that. But then I do work with the Brennan Center, and I'm also – do some work with the Open Markets Institute, which is an anti-monopoly organization. And that's very important, the connection between consolidation, monopolization, and democracy. And that's sort of where I come in, because I've written a lot about democracy. I teach a course on challenges to liberal democracies, which is a, looks at comparative challenges involving the way that democratic and constitutional structures can be manipulated to advance an autocratic vision. But monopoly is is very much, and consolidation is very much an aspect of anti-democratic efforts, limiting access to different modes of communication, but also controlling political access and funding. Um, So so I've worked with open markets. They're doing really important work. Monopoly is not bad just because, you know, it might cause the price of flour to go up. It's really also, it's a broad net of interests and include democracy workers, communities, um, competition. There's a reason we value competition. It provides for innovation. It ensures that, you know, that prices are actually competitive and Amazon might provide you with a cheaper thing now. But once there's no competitor, Amazon has no constraints and the prices can go where they may. So that's also been a really interesting organization to work with and to try and learn. I don't come in from the antitrust kind of legal perspective as much as from the democracy constitutional
1: perspective. It's hard not to be pretty discouraged about the continuing attacks on liberal democracy here, right? And if you look forward to the next presidential election with Trump and DeSantis angling for the leadership, there's been some articles about what Trump would do if he got gets another term, or you can see what DeSantis does in Florida as a probable model for what he would do if he were the next president. And it does seem analogous potentially to what we see around the world with right-wing authoritarians coming up more or less legally and, and then turning their country into a totally different type of entity. How do you view kind of the state of peril right now on some scale?
0: Well, I think you, you stated it quite well. I mean, Unfortunately, with the class that I teach, I've, I've taught it for three years, there's always new material. Um, and it's a great deal of it comes from our own very own country. I mean, we do look at Hungary and Poland, and Venezuela, and India, uh, Turkey. Um, Brazil, United, it just
1: goes on, yes.
0: Yes. But, you know, you've also see Italy, France, Britain. I mean, there are examples of of, and Brexit is a you know good example of kind of a populist uprising you know that was also manipulated, speaking of money and politics, um, social media. But I look at the United States and I think we're really much on the razor's edge. January 6th was a really dangerous moment and it was not just dangerous in terms of the threat that it posed for the people in the capital in that very moment, but it was dangerous because we came very close to an interruption to a peaceful transition of government in a way that would have been a profound shock. We depended on a, on a couple of people to do the right thing who who are not people I really want to put my faith in. For or, and
1: time. may not be there next time, even those it's people, not, even and, like the Dan Quails that are getting consulted. And, you know, the Trumpists learned a lot from that episode. Do you think that the understanding on our side is sufficient to the possible... Uh, things that might be on the horizon?
0: Well, I, I I think it is. But on the other hand, I think because there are so many challenges, it makes it hard to, to know what more we could do. They did reform the Electoral Count Act, which was really important to get that done before the Looney Tunes took over the House of Representatives. And I have to commend uh, Dana Milbank writes so well about this in the Washington Post about Marjorie Taylor Greene and her Jewish space lasers and all of the other things. But these are the people who are now in charge of the House of Representatives. And, you know, we have the speaker who turned over an enormous number of tapes of the January 6th insurrection to Fox News and Tucker Carlson. We are really at a point where it's hard to see what comes next. If, for example, they win the presidency, and perhaps the Senate, we're in for a real rough ride.
1: Do you miss now, or do you think you will miss not helming an organization that's squarely in that fight if it comes to that?
0: Not, no, not at this stage. I'd rather spend my time kind of analyzing and writing about it and hopefully be useful in that way.
1: Yeah. How did you come to write a book about AOC?
0: Oh, well, that was kind of funny. I was solicited by the publisher.
1: It's kind of a series of books about leaders. Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
0: It was really fun to write. I mean, she's such an interesting person and the idea behind these books was to to examine women leaders and draw lessons. So, uh, it was quirky because the series was kind of almost like a self-help mashup with a biography. It was really fun to write. It's the ideas for younger younger women and and others who should be inspired by their leadership and think about, you know, how to, how to become leaders themselves.
1: What do you think her future is?
0: Oh, I think she's got a big future. I mean, she has not been as vocal lately, but she has been very successful. And that's one reason why, I mean, the democratic party is a much more progressive party than it's been. I mean, the, people tend to think of Joe Biden simply because he's an older guy, older white guy um, and uh, kind of, uh, plays the kind of average Joe as as a moderate or even conservative Democrat. But the the policies that he's been following have actually been extremely progressive. And I want to go back to the judges. His nominees have been really pretty terrific. The investments in in green technologies, there's always room for more. But I think she's been a really instrumental piece of that, of raising these issues up for the party, challenging leadership. The real reason that the publisher reached out to me initially was because I wrote a piece for The New York Times about her, which was funny because I was at the gym, I think at the time, and I was on the stationary bike. And because of who I am, I'm watching C-SPAN. And I watched her interrogate uh, Michael Cohen and elucidate from him some of the most damaging testimony that became the basis for the subpoenas involving the financial documents and so forth. And I thought, I hadn't really focused on her before. So I wrote a New York Times op-ed about, you know, this is how it's done you know, most members of Congress are all about grandstanding in the couple of minutes they have to ask a question. And she actually really asked the question focused on the testimony. She did a follow-up question. I mean, none of this should be, you know, rocket science, but it doesn't happen at all. Except for the January 6th commission, they did such a great job choreographing that. And in the impeachment efforts, they were also really good. But generally, hearings in Congress are an effort for a member of Congress to just sort of grandstand and so anyway, so I wrote that piece and I had been told I was really impressed with her. She's incredibly smart. She's got a big future. We'll see what happens. You know, she may run for Senate going forward.
1: Um, she seems pretty fearless for a young person. I certainly at that age couldn't imagine, you know, grilling people and standing in in a public forum like that. It's pretty impressive.
0: Yeah, yeah. no, absolutely.
1: Yeah. What should I have asked you that I haven't?
0: So I have a new book.
1: Tell me about that.
0: Okay. Well, my new book is, also, is called actually um, <laughs> La Cour Suprême, Le Pouvoir Suprême, which is my first book that I wrote in French um, called The Supreme Court, The Supreme Power. It's a short book, uh, about 150 pages for an audience of mystified French people or Francophones who just don't understand, like, how, how does your court exercise the kind of power that it does. And to try and explain the background and the critiques um, and what are the possible reforms. That grew out of a, a number of lectures I've given in in France to both the Institute of, of Political Science in, in Lyon, but also to the uh, Catholic University of Lyon Law School. And I have an editor who, who, who wanted me to write this book. And so I wrote it.
1: Will it be translated into English?
0: Yeah, I guess it could be. I could <laughs> translate it, I suppose. But I've written um, similar arguments in English in different places.
1: What is the, the thesis there?
0: The thesis is that judicial review in this context has gotten out of control, that the court has arrogated to itself so much power by having an unreviewable ability to knock down laws and constitutional protections that we are very much in, in need of the reforms that you and I just you know, talked about in terms of term limits and court expansion. In addition to the Supreme Court needs a code of ethics, which I testified in front of the House Judiciary Committee in, in, in December about the only court in our federal system that's not subject to a code of conduct. That's highly problematic.
1: Do you think that Ginny Thomas sometimes oversteps?
0: Well, yes. I mean, I think she may well, it would be good to know what kinds of financial entanglements would require Justice Thomas to recuse himself.
1: Well, it's really an honor to talk to you. Is there anything else well, you want to say? fun. Yeah.
0: No. Just
1: what a pleasure it was to talk to you today. That was Caroline. She's at law.georgetown.edu. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.